welcome back to the Brooklyn Bikers Show. You are listening to a very special episode where we are joined by one of the UK's top custom bike builders for the Bold Industries, where we'll be talking all things calf racer and custom bike builds. If you haven't already, don't forget to like and subscribe. Okay, so we are here with Ant, um, the the man, the brains, and the brawn behind For the Bold Industries. Good evening, Ant. How are you? Um, good, thank you. Yeah, good. And yourself? Yeah, we're good. It's uh, it's nice to have you on. Thank you for your time. We've we've spent cool. the majority of the podcast so far talking about racing and, and talking about our own builds, and, and we're the first to admit that we are ranked novices, I think, when it comes to custom builds. So. What we thought we would do is, is go to the expert and we'd get some insight on on you and your processes. I can see you've got the mongrel sat behind you there. So, yeah. I mean, I guess for the listeners, um, Ant, talk talk to me a little bit about For the Bold Industries, what it's about, where it comes from, where it started. Uh, well, I was about to, to butt in then by kind of saying, well, I'm, a, I'm almost a novice too. I mean, I wouldn't by any means call myself uh, an expert. Um, but probably, probably old hat at it by now, but yeah, by no means an expert. Um, I mean, it started, well, I mean, starting from the very start, my dad put me on a, on a motocross, a little um, 50cc Honda monkey bike uh, when I was four. And that's where it started from. Um, and I used to do a bit of motocrossing with him. And he used to do a lot of marshalling on uh, enduro races and stuff. So I always used to go out with him. And... Um, back then, <clears throat> because motorbikes are so cheap back then, what we used to do rather than buying a proper motocross bike was just buying like, uh, I remember, well, the second bike I got after the Honda 50cc was uh, a Yamaha DT80, which was a road bike. And we just put knobblies on it. I painted it myself with a paintbrush, um, red, and that was it. That was my scrambler bike then. Uh, and that's that's all we used to do. Um you know, pick, pick bikes up for cheap and then just do them up. And that's where, uh, I guess, the passion started from. And then as things got a little bit more serious, then, yeah, you got onto the bigger bikes. And I've just shown you the Myco 490 um, that my laptop's leaning on at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's double-hatting as a laptop table tonight. It is, it's on its side at the moment because I'm trying to drill out the uh, the, the swing arm pin. <laughs> that's a, a long... See. Well, my fault, uh, and this is where the novice bit comes in. I was really impatient the other night, and I decided to put the pin in, um, obviously having powder-coated the swing arm, and there's a bit of powder coat on the inside. I thought it'd be all right. I didn't. I managed to get the majority of it out, um, and there's a tiny bit left. And as soon as I put the pin in, I regretted it because it was stuck half in, half out, and I can't get the pin out at all now, no mind what I do to it. So I'm just drilling it out got a 14 mil bit i need to go at it now um so yeah like i said there's mistakes everywhere a lot of it is just being impatient to be honest um so yeah uh, from there got into the bigger bike so i was riding this 490 when i was 10 couldn't reach the floor um but riding it um but then after that there was a, a massive kind of hiatus just didn't do anything for years um focused more on work and going out and things during my 20s uh and then I came back and the mic was outside and the engine had ceased and everything. Been outside for 15 years. So then I started rebuilding this the first time around. Um, and then I did a quick video on YouTube with one of the very first videos out there. And it was pretty much filmed on a toaster. 
um, of it starting for the first time, uh, mostly just to show my cousin in Italy. And then all of a sudden that racked up kind of 60,000 views just from someone starting a bike. Wow. I thought, that's, okay, that's interesting. And that gave me a bit of a motivation then to get my first project. I wanted to get back into bikes, um, hadn't ridden for years. So I bought the GS550. Again, started filming that, not with the intention of it going anywhere. Um, didn't do as well as that one video of me starting the, the mic up. Um, and anyway, just shortly afterwards, as that build progressed, I think about a year, year and a half went on, still didn't gain too much traction. And then I got the CX500 and then that's where it kind of kicked off really. That's where it started to gain serious traction and interest from everyone. And then obviously CX500 was the first show, uh, first bike I showed at the Bike Shed Show, 2018. And kind of went on from there. And it's it's now not so much the channel content. It, at the start, it was. At the start, it was getting content out. And um, it felt a little bit like a job. But it's um, kind of over, over it at the moment on um, pleasing other people. It's more my hobby. It's more my escape. Because um, I said to you before, uh, you know, before we started recording, my day jobs looking at screens and uh, a graphic designer, crowd director. Um, so it's not really manual. And I, you always kind of have to do what other people tell you to do. You always have to do what the client wants. So this is my escape from that everyday life where I can just do what I want. And it's a it's a getaway, really. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a hobby now rather than, you know, getting content out for the sake of, of getting content. It's literally just me enjoying it. Oh, excellent. There's a couple of things in there that I do want to come back to the social media aspect. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of the mistakes, you know, we've we we set out with the intention of, of building this little calf racer. It, it came in buckets. So we've we've rebuilt the thing literally nut and bolt. Every single job, though, I think we've done more than once. You know, you, you do everything twice, but you never do the same mistake again. No. Um, what I wanted just to, to come back on and, and touch on that there, and I did have a look at your website and there's a phrase on there which I really like, which is, um, I think it's something along the lines of, we build bikes that we like. Yeah. So is that, I guess that's the sort of the mantra behind For the Bold now. Yeah, I, I mean, reading the website, it does sound like I'm more of a motorcycle builder for other people than, uh, and especially using the, the we, um, <laughs> makes me sound a lot bigger than, uh, than what I am. But uh yeah, absolutely. I, I just build what I want. Um, if I've well, I've done two bikes now for well, one bike for a friend, another one half built for a friend. So that's the R100 I've got sat here. Um, I'll build bikes for friends um, with a you know. There's always a bit of input from them, but mostly what I like doing is just what I want to do. Um, and. Like I said, with social media, there's always going to be a bit of judgment. There's going to be people saying, I don't like it. And you have to be thick-skinned when you do social media. So I'm, I'm not building to please anyone. If I want to put like, behind me a VFR 750 engine into a CB650 frame, then I'll do it. And that's, I mean, that tanks have so much criticism, but I, I don't care. I like it. So, um, yeah, I just do what I want. Um, if I like it, that's it. Um I say I'll do things wrong and that's completely fine. Like you learn from your mistakes. Uh, yeah, that's it. There's what, one of the guys I do like to follow is Magnus Walker. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen his uh, outlaw thing. He's, yeah. he's brilliantly on there. It's like, 
he obviously sells his cars but um you know if you like what i'm building hey you can buy it from me but he won't build for anyone else that's yeah. it so i mean i have always wondered and it wasn't until some of your later videos and some of the later content that you put out that i realized that all of these builds are still in your workshop or, or most certainly most of them so i'm guessing on that basis you know most of these builds that you've done the, the gs the cx the yeah. monster the mongrel etc i mean these, it's are, just, these the are just your bikes then now i'm guessing yeah yeah so the gs is behind me there cx is there that's the mongrel Michael's on there the r100 um yeah well i'm royal enfield and the k100 behind there the only bikes i don't have so the um, the Ducati Monster is at the studio at the moment getting its um, photo taken. So that's one good thing. At least it's out the, out the workshop, but it'll be coming back here. Um, there's two of the bikes. So there's the CV750, which was the Warrior. That, Warrior, yeah. That was built for a friend. Um, so he's got that back now. And there was the other one. There's this, the Orange CX500 that I built at Dime City Cycles the, in Florida. The flat tracker. That flat tracker, yeah. So that was given away um as a as a raffle prize so yeah those are the only two bags i'm kept what a prize to win at a raffle it beats a uh, a dodgy old bottle of wine doesn't it for five dollars as well and, and to make it even better that the guy had never ridden a bike in his life but bless him he was it was in aid of prostate cancer uh sorry prostate cancer foundation and uh yeah he's he's a survivor from it so you know it couldn't have gone to a better person Oh, fantastic. Oh, good. So, I mean, I guess let's let's go back to the process then a, a little bit. You know, we, as I've said, we're very much ranked novices and, and we're probably now 80 or 90% of the way through this build. But ju just kind of talk me through the process a bit, Ant. Do you find the donor bike and then design around it? Or do you, do you have a bit of a vision of what you want to build and, and the bike you want? And, and, you know, how do you go about sourcing the donor bikes? Just, just kind of outline the process a bit. It's a bit of both. Nowadays, donor bikes are so difficult to come by. Um, That's you, absolutely the truth, yeah. Yourself, there's a scarcity of it, the, the price of them. I mean, when I started, there were K75s, K100s going for about £350, running fully MOT'd. Now you can't pick one up. Uh, you can't even pick up a non-runner probably for less than than seven eight hundred pounds a thousand maybe so, so yeah the, the bike don't is becoming really scarce for me um to begin with i like the gs550 shell as it was because i would seen a few cool builds from that um so that was specifically chosen as a donor bike that's when it was back cheap i think i paid 300 for that um, the CX was the next one. I really wanted to build a 6500, so that was deli a deliberate choice. Um, the Ducati I'd bought as a um, as a commuter bike, and I said in one of my previous videos I was never going to touch it, and I ended up hacking it to bits. Um, nowadays, uh, obviously, you've seen the K100 there. That that is specifically kept for a build i've got in mind um later on because again i got that really cheap um the process of looking for bikes ebay's gone so expensive now i think it's just keeping your ear to the ground um within biker communities and things you will find someone who's an old retired rider or something like that and they might have a gem in the workshop or garage or something like that they want to get rid of for a decent price 
um, you know, even garage clearances or something like that, people don't know the value of bikes. That's always somewhere it's good to look at. Um, yeah, eBay, people know the worth of things now. So you, you're going to be really, really hard pushed to get a decent bike. So that's the best way I can think of, really, is just keep your ear to grad for like garage clearances or friends or anything like that. I um, definitely agree that, you know, the, the sourcing of bikes is becoming more difficult. My um, my dad, Andy, the grumpy biker himself, who, who's obviously not here tonight, he spent most of his amateur racing career uh, racing two strokes. Yeah. And he's been through his back catalogue of bikes that he's owned. And, he, you know, he could have retired 15 years ago had he have kept them all, which obviously you don't at the time. Just thinking back to that, and obviously with, with our build that we've got on the go at the moment, we bought it, as I said, as a non-runner. It was in buckets. I think it was 200 quid. And one of the things that's made our build difficult and probably slow it down a bit is the fact that actually, you know, we haven't got a running base to start with. So we've, we've rebuilt the top end completely. You know, it's had lots of mechanical work. Are you, you know, quite mechanically minded as well? Will you go after something that needs mechanical work or do you tend to look for a runner, something that's, you know, sort of ready to go? Uh, I'm, I think what puts me off is the cost more than anything. You probably found out yourself. Um, if you've got a runner, that eliminates a lot of costs and stuff. The GS550 was a non-runner didn't have anything electrical with it um and then once you start adding up the the points i'm going to put a dynatech ignition system on that so that was eliminating points anyway but then once you've got the coils and everything it just soon adds up um the cb750 was a non-runner uh we didn't know why as soon as we opened the the belly pan on that it was just full of copper shavings so obviously the crankshaft uh bearings had gone all the way down to the copper so yeah, that was a rebuild and there was a massive cost. Oh my God, there was like 180 pounds just for the, the crank shells. It was ridiculous. So for me nowadays, I'd probably always go for a runner. I'd probably recommend that to a lot of people, especially people starting off by, by every single means. Go for a runner um, because even if you are mechanically minded, it's the cost just racks up straight away. So what you, the little extra that you'd be paying for a runner really offsets what you'd be paying for for a non-runner just to get it to that exact state again oh yeah i mean we've we've felt that pain and i guess the other challenges as well you, you know certainly with the calf racer with that very sort of sharp horizontal line and that that minimalist styling you're looking at early 80s late 70s sort of minimum for that type of bike obviously the parts aren't easy to find anymore either are they no they're not um especially honda they were all bought up by um Oh my goodness, I can't remember the name of the supplier. It's been that long ago. Anyway, there's a, there's a British supplier who bought up all the old 70s and 80s stock. And yeah, they, they know the worth of things now. So Honda parts are just ridiculous for those bikes. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of aftermarket stuff you can get, but you end up buying twice for those. Um, from experience, the, the CX500 in that I built with Dime City Cycles, we had cheap aftermarket um, intake boots from the from the carbs to the engine, and they just weren't decent at all. They literally split straight away, and they weren't even pointing in the right direction. So we ended up buying OEM ones. So that's twice you you know you you're paying twice in a way uh, just to try and skimp on some money. So. Um, uh, things like the Suzuki, I was lucky there's a Suzuki dealership down the road and they were really handy with kind of um, sourcing old parts for me and stuff. But again, you're, you're paying 
massive amounts. So you can understand now why people are going for more modern bikes and then mimicking those cafe racer lines, those cleaner lines. I, I think it's a good thing in a way. It it stops builds from looking the same. It starts opening up people's minds on how they're going to get these lines going. And there's even you know people like Ziggy Moto um, and even the the Power Brick. They had an amazing build of bike which I'd show where they're starting to 3D print their own shells and bodies and things. And it starts, yeah, starts opening people's minds a little bit on using possibly more reliably newer bikes. Well, I think, um, you, I mean, you brought me on to my next point there. I mean, firstly, the, the Zigimoto CX500 at the bike show was absolutely stunning. We, I think it was one of the first bikes in the entrance hall as well. So, yeah, we had a real good look around that. Obviously, the, you know, there, there is... A resurgence i would say around this this sort of retro classic bike scene but but the the calf racer flat tracker sort of styles there's a big resurgence there but also you know the oems are going that way as well aren't they if you look at things like the new z900 kawasaki the, the bmw r900 uh, sorry the r90 um you know there's a resurgence around that what, what i wanted to ask you and obviously we've seen a, a bit of a I don't like the word, but I'll use it. A bit of a journey through your designs. The the Warrior, the GS, the CX, they were probably more akin to a traditional CX5, uh, sorry, a traditional calf racer style. And then we fast forward to the Monster, which is just, you know, on another planet. What's what's your kind of, in a good way, by the way, that's a compliment, of course. What's, well, I, you your, know sort what? of, what's your process for that, you know, for the, the visual aspects of the bike? Are you you know doodling something on a piece of paper and then it becomes reality you know how do you do, can you see the finished bike before you've turned the spanner absolutely i mean the like you say the the more classic um builds that i, I did were uh yeah there, there was a bit of work needed but just a tiny bit of frame modifications still like yeah the cx and the cb 750 we just had the frame hoops same with the gs as well actually just the frame hoops put on and then it's almost just like the bolt on bits that you can do and as a starting point um just of me kind of understanding the lines i wanted to create it was brilliant and then um it was bike shed show 2019 i started seeing a lot more experimental stuff and that was a push for me to start pushing myself as well so that's where the the monster came in and um I mean, I'll never build that bike again. My God, I was I was going through the footage, and it gave me anxiety just going through all the work process. That's that's gone into that. I um, think there were there were probably seven or eight episodes just um, uh, designated to the monocoque um, carbon fairing piece, weren't there? Yeah, and people are getting fed up with that episode. They're like, we just want to run from this now. But that was my life. Literally, I, I must have primed and sanded it down about eight times until until I was happy with the shape um but yeah that was just pushing myself uh in terms of design presses i know i know this is audio um so i'm, I'm just going to show you there but that was the original sketch for the for the ducati monster um so there was a, a kind of a preconception of what i wanted it to look like that i had all the lines and everything sketched out and i had the, the vision that i wanted an orange frame with a gray body that was it um obviously things evolved later on to being like, well, it's made out of carbon fiber, so I'm going to show the carbon fiber through the paintwork and things. So yeah, I always kind of start off with with an idea of what I want to create. How I go about it, I've no idea. Um, it's well, it's it, quite reassuring to hear that because we've, 
I think we'd had the frame powder coated before we'd rebuilt the engine and, and we've done everything asked about Faye. So I am, it is reassuring to hear that there isn't too much of a, a strict plan. But I'm guessing on the way, if you, you kind of see something different or, you know, part of the bike you like, you, you know, you chop and change what the yeah. end product's going to look like. And that's the beauty about it. There's no one to stop you. There's uh, sometimes you need someone to stop you because you can you can build forever and never come to the end of it. But yeah, that, that's the beauty of it. You when you start uh, and uh, yeah, I had this exact same conversation with uh, someone else. Um, I'm not Ziggy Moto. You know, hats off to him. I can't do what he does. I can't sketch to to his level i can't do 3d to his level so he has a really specific idea of what the finished bike will be before he's even started the bike whereas me you know i, I can do a sketch i can do a doodle like i showed you then um but i can't visualize it in 3d so like with the the monster i had an idea of what i wanted the side to look like but as top down the back front i had absolutely no idea so that kind of thing evolves when i start creating it in 3d um, and there was a few things I started changing on that. Um, I started having kind of sweeped curving lines uh, where, the, where the knee dents were. And then I kind of looked at it and actually, no, it needs to be more angular than that. It needs, the bike needs to be a lot more angular. So there's things that need to change on the fly uh, and then colour schemes and everything like that. But that's, that's the beauty with what we do. We can, I suppose that's that's the, the part I like most is at the end of the day, you just kind of sit down. I don't know if you do it yourself, but I'm sure you do. You sit down with a cup of tea when you're, absolutely knackered after building something sit down you look at it and you'll just sit there for about an hour and you'll start contemplating the next steps and things and that's when you get the clearer ideas in your head well i remember we as i said you know we, we're not quite finished yet and i think there's a couple of things in it which i am going to ask you another question in a moment but we started out with the intention of you know a bit of a, an amateur build um go out find the donor bike give it some love, put our own sort of stamp on it, um, you know, some customization, but also make it usable, make it nice and, and sort of running and reliable, et cetera. Sell it, go to the next one, go to the next one, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the, the, the little GPZ we've got now, that's been in the garage for over a year, I think. But the further we're into it, the more I'm looking at it and I'm thinking this, this isn't going to be sold. However rough it comes out or imperfect, I think it's going to stay in the garage. Yeah. But the, the the thing, the question I sort of wanted to ask you, well, there's two questions, really. The, the first one, you know, with, with the bikes that you've got, obviously a lot of them sit in the garage there. Uh, do they go anywhere? You know, are they all road legal? Are you out? Do you ride them? <laughs> uh, they are. So the GS, GS550, um, it's looking a little sorry for itself. So, yeah, they're all, they're all road legal. There's no MOT on the CX at the moment, but again, that is road legal. The GS550 is tax and MOT exempt. Um, the Ducati will have its MOT in the next few weeks. Um, I just need to swap the headlight back to a more practical headlight for that um, to pass. But yeah, they're, they're all functional. Um, I just don't have much time really to, to, to take them out. Uh, I love fiddling more than anything. Uh, my My absolute enjoyment is taking something apart and putting it back together and i'll do that several times with the bike even if it's to clean the carbs out or something um and i've got my royal enfield in the garage here so that's that's a, a real reliable commuter for me so that gives me my kind of riding pleasure but you know they're the yeah they, they do see the light of day every now and then but very very rarely 
Um, so do you do you have to put a bit of additional consideration into that then, Ant? Because we we've, we've got some great ideas for our build. You know, the, the finishing touches, um, you know, lights, aesthetics, things like that. But ours will be, I think it will be MOT and tax exempt next year. So if I want to go and ride this this summer, you know, I'm going to need to MOT it. Do, do you need to put much additional consideration into that? Certainly something like the Monster that's heavily customised. Only only what needs to be done in terms of MOT. If I mean, for, for those people familiar with the MOT process, there's actually very little to fail on. Um, as long as your tank's fixed in place and your seat is fixed in place, that's pretty much it. There's a few few legal things um like your indicator spacing at the back needs to be a certain space and things like that and like I said, the, the headlight pattern needs to have a kick up to the left so you kind of do those things if, if you're creating a rideable bike you do those things in mind um or you you put the possibility of you know once you've shown it off in the bike show, show or anything like that then you you're able to put on the functional stuff back on to to be able to enjoy it so yeah you have that in mind um absolutely uh as far as practicality for riding positions, I mean, I, I sat on the Monster for the first time like two days before the bike shed show. That is not a practical bike to sit on because the, the tank... It's aggressive style, isn't it? The tank's so long. It's about four inches longer than the original Monster tank. So you sat, you sat far back. Clip-ons, as good as clip-ons look, they're never practical. Um, so all those things, I'll, I'll definitely take the Monster out and I'll... I'll use that as a bit of a commuter as well because it'll be a shame for that to just gather dust um but if i was riding a proper bike oh, sorry if, if i was building a proper bike for myself i'd probably put you know either high-rise clip-ons or something like that make it a little bit more practical on my old back yeah and yeah, i know the feeling i've had um i started out life on the road on a on a sports bike i had an aprilia rsv milli um which very very quickly became the track bike in exchange for a Tuono. So the same engine, but with some big comfy upright bars. So I know the pain there. Going back um, to just a little bit, we, we spoke about the sort of design and, and how they've changed and progressed, you know, over the few years that we've been following your builds. I, I think what I find really interesting, and I'll, I'll probably go back to the monster again, it does loosely follow the, uh, I guess, the tradition of the calf racer. You yeah. know, that, that horizontal line, the, the kind of shorts to be seat unit, you know, the low handlebars, clip-ons, etc. But I think it's fair to say that, it, you know, it pushes the envelope quite significantly. Is that, you know, is that something that's deliberate? Do, do you want to kind of have a nod to the traditional style, but with, you know, a complete sort of trailblazing design? You know, and, and what does the next build look like? Are we going to see something that's even more out there, can I say? For that for the particular for that particular bike, the monster, yeah, I did want to keep a few classic lines because I was still calling it a cafe racer. It starts to get onto Street Fighter territory a little bit, doesn't it? Because um, the seats is kind of pointed up and it's going down a hill and stuff like that. So, but I still wanted it to to kind of be an evolution of a cafe racer, and it there's a lot of cafe racer purists out there which don't kind of agree with the newer styles of cafe racers so it was pushing pushing the boundaries and almost trying to get them to be like actually yeah that that is potentially a nice bike it's not going to please everyone but yeah it's trying to trying to change people's mindsets on using new donors as well uh as for next builds obviously you've got the mongrel 
behind me there. Um, I don't even know what that bike is. <laughs> yeah, well, do you know what, though, Anne? I, I think I agree to a certain extent. There are a lot of people that are very fixed on on these categorizations of bikes. You know, I quite like the fact that it blurs the lines a little bit. Um, but that, that was what I was going to ask you next. What is the next build or, or what's the next bike that's planned to be finished? So there's the, the mongrel on the, on the shelf there. So that is... Like I said, I don't know what genre it fits in because it doesn't, it, it's just a build that shouldn't exist. So it's that's a the point though, isn't it? That's what's great about it. It is. It's a VFR 750 engine in a CB650 frame. It doesn't fit the frame. So the frame's been hacked to pieces and it's got almost a weird trellis custom frame going above it. So it's got hints of a monster in it. Um, it's got a bobber style seat at the back. It's got a it's got a pooch mv50 scooter fuel tank uh i think it's triumph wheel at the back and a norton at the front god knows where and obviously so, there's a big patch of denim missing from your best jeans as well <laughs> there is there is i'm just walking about with uh, with chaps on now um, I'm, just, I'm just conscious that obviously not everybody listening might realize what i'm referring to there so maybe you can elaborate yeah, so the seat on this, this this bike is probably built for the haters. Going back to those uh, that that like to complain, um, this this was definitely a tongue in cheek build for me, and it was almost a um, just a gimmick. Like I said, it's just just tongue in cheek, and it's to evoke uh, evoke criticism. Criticism of any kind is always good. You're going to get haters. You're going to get lovers of bikes so this was to really split split the opinions um so the seat is made out of um an old pair of diesel jeans i have uh so that's denim seat first of all hand stitched by me and the pocket's still even at the top so you can actually put your gloves or credit card or whatever you want in the actual seat itself um so yeah things like that things that i like i said i'm being really cheeky with this build i'm evoking reaction so there's going to be a lot of people that hate the denim seat that's great that that'll get me feedback of some kind and that's that's all you need really it's a talking point well if if nobody else um you know how much comfort you take from this i don't know but if, if nobody else takes inspiration from that you can know that we did um on the the first iteration of our build we bought um an old leather bike jacket from ebay yeah which i think was five quid and basically cut panels from that and, and upholstered the seat out of the old jacket with bits of the zip on show and stuff like that. As it happened, talking about, you know, the mistakes we make, the um, subframe at the rear was about two inches too long for the, the seat unit that we'd made. So it was a choice of chop the frame and re-weld it or change the seat. So we changed the seat. But, well, you know, we took some inspiration from that. I think it's, uh, you know, it's about pushing the envelope a bit, isn't it? And, and you know, it's, well, you're called for the bold. I guess that's the point, right? Yeah, and, and as well as you know mindful of what budgets are not everyone has and that's probably good going back to the shed row comment before and how many really decent bikes there were at shed row um there's a lot of money that's being thrown at them and it even got to the point with me and the monster where i thought right that's enough spending on it now i've spent far too much on it um and yeah you the true essence of the cafe racer is always to do things on the cheap and as as kind of homemade as you could so absolutely if you've got an old jacket why why spend on brand new leather when you can just re reuse that and stuff i absolutely love it anything to do to to save any money on any build i'm, I'm an advocate 
Well, I think it's really interesting. You know, the, the bike shed show creates a lot of social media sort of hype and, and in the circles that, that we follow, I'm sure, and, and look at it, social media, there's a lot of people that went, a lot of people that have shown bikes yeah. and a lot of people that then subsequently put them up for sale. And I think when, when you're seeing some of these calf racer type bikes that go up for sale and they're at 15, 20,000 pounds, it makes you realize that, you know, these have just had basically a blank check thrown at them. What I think we like about your build is that you can see there is an aspect of budget around it. Um, and, and, you know, we've, we've sort of followed that mantra to a certain extent, you know, there's bits we've replaced, but where possible, we've upcycled and, and tried to reuse parts. We've made brackets from old brackets, yeah. excuse me. So, you know, I think that's kind of part of it, but I've, I've also found, you know, my dad's an engineer by trade. Um, I'm certainly not far from it, but I've found that getting your hands into something and just trying it, you know, it might not necessarily work first time, but maybe second or third it will. And I've found far more satisfaction in kind of engineering a solution rather than right back to eBay. Let's go and buy something off the shelf. It feels, you know, it feels like your bike and your build then, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you can get something running, um, even the, like the intake boots on the CX 500, I think I used some, some shrink wrap um, tubing just to seal up a few cracks I had in it. Well, we've um, done the exact same. Yeah. Sort of 50 mil heat shrink. Yeah, that's it. It's, I mean, it saves you. God, I mean, they're so expensive, aren't they? Like 20, 20 pound or even more sometimes, 30 pound per tube, really, um, to buy them new again. So why not come up with a solution like that? And even painting, uh, I mentioned before that I'd painted the uh, the monster myself and, you know, hand painting engines and stuff. Yeah, it's nice to have things powder coated, but and it's nice to have an engine powder coated, but you've got to strip it apart. You've then got to get gaskets for everything again, bearings, and it, it gets an expensive process just to just to powder coat an engine. So why not take a bit of VHT and paint it? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's what we did. And it's run up to temperature and it's yet to all flake off. So, so <laughs> far, so good. Um, so look, conscious of your time, I know you're a busy guy. I want to finish with the, with the last couple of questions. This is probably more for my benefit than anybody that's listening, but... If, if you were to give us some advice, you know, we are more novice, far more novice than you are. But after going to the Bike Shed show on Sunday, it's now, I think, the ambition, maybe the dream to go and get a bike there and, and you know, have a bike parked up on Shed Row. What kind of advice would you give us for that as, as more novices? Um, or, or, in fact, let me re rephrase the question. How did you get there? How did you get your first bike there? Mine, mine was just through, like yourself, through through ambition of wanting a bike. There, I mean, the accolade of having a bike at the bike shed show is just massive. Um, and for for me, I didn't have because I I'd never been to the bike shed show before. I'd been to the bike shed, um, but never to the show, so I had no um, expectations of the kind of level of build or anything like that. I mean, like we've just touched upon then. The, the quality of detail and the level of building shed row sometimes surpasses what's in the professional section. Um, I, I, if it was me going in now, I'd probably build what I'd want to build um, in mind, not trying to build what you think the bike shed wants in mind. Um, because what you find is the more unique it is to you, there'll be a unique aspect that the curators of the bike shed show will be like, actually, that's really nice. We'll, 
we'll show this bike because it's got that bit of personality and um even you know my monster for example that was done with a mindset of being out there and zany i don't think bike builds have to be out there and zany i think they just have to be really nice builds quality builds and that's all that's needed for uh for the show really every you you saw yourself there was even old beat up bikes there um you know hand lovingly restored but they still had all that all that history and all you know all the battle scars and everything in and that's that's what makes a bike for me it's just as long as there's, there's a bit of bit of a story and a bit of personality behind it i say if you, if you can maintain that through your build then that's what you need to, to think about with a bike shed worthy build really oh, i love that that's uh yeah great advice and thank you um okay so i'm going to leave you with probably the last question um which is a a two-pronged question part one um any bike with money being no object that you could have in your workshop now as the the kind of ultimate fantasy build and then part two if the worst was to happen and the workshop caught on fire which one of those current bikes are you saving um right part one oh right that's putting me on the spot actually um i just just because of the heritage i'd have to go for an italian bike i'd probably go for Oh no! I wouldn't, I wouldn't go. I mean, I guess I'd probably go for a Motoguzzi because that—that that is the true V twin. The CX is always a poor man's V twin. Um, I'd probably go for a Motoguzzi build. I remember what Death Machines of London did with with their Motoguzzi, um, and that was absolutely awesome. In fact, my, one of my favourite builds ever was the Kenzo that they did on the Goldwing um, base, but. Honestly, to, that was brave to, to do that with the Goldwing. But yeah, Motoguzzi, absolute dream build. Um, and which bike I'd grab first, uh, or if I could save only one bike, it would be the Myco 490 that's on the table here. Even though it's in bits, I'd probably drag that out first because that was my dad's bike. Um, yeah, and that's the backstory and, and the nostalgia there, right? Yeah, so that everything else, I yeah, I'm fond of every other build here, but no, I couldn't let this burn. That'd be the one I'd grab. Yeah, good answer. It's probably not a very fair question. It's like asking which of your children is your favourite, I suppose, isn't it? Which we can't all answer. I'm a new dad, so I've, there's only one, so it's easy for me. But if it came oh, to the blokes, right. yeah. Oh, I've, I've just got one as well. One and one's enough for me. Right. And listen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And, and thank you so much for the insight into your workshop um, for, for some of your viewers that have questioned whether it's green screen or not. <laughs> Clearly, it's not. We've, we've had a look round, and the some of the, uh, the the famous bikes sit there. Um, so yeah, listen. Thank you so much for your time and and the great insight you've given us. Um, for those listening that don't already, you should absolutely follow Ant and for the Bold Industries. He's on YouTube with a well, pretty big following now. Ant tens of thousands, isn't it? Uh, yeah, about one hundred sixty-three thousand, I think. Wow. So that's completely unimaginable. Never thought I'd get to that number. So if you don't already, you should absolutely subscribe to Ant's YouTube channel. You can follow him on Instagram as well. It's at For The Bold Industries uh, with some underscores in there. You'll find him. It's, it's pretty apparent when you start looking at the content. Um, but yeah, Ant, listen, I'll leave you to it. Thank you so much for your time. And we'll be looking forward to, uh, to the next build. Absolutely. And hopefully catch you at the Bike Shed Show next year. Definitely, definitely. You'll, you'll have a build in there, no problem at all. 
Fantastic. Right. Take care, Ant. Have a nice evening. Cheers. All the best with your build. Cheers. Bye, Ant. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Grumpy Biker Show and thanks from us to For the Bold Industries. If you haven't already, you can like and subscribe to the podcast. You can also follow AMJ Motorcycles on Instagram and For the Bold Industries across Instagram and YouTube to keep up to date with current builds and projects. Until next time, keep your tyres down.